Romans chapter 2. And our text this morning is verses 1 to 5. Last Lord's Day, we were looking at uh, the indictment that the Apostle was giving really to the Gentile world and what happens when God hands them over to a depraved mind. That the things that were contained in chapter 1, especially beginning of verse 18 and following, were things that, that were considered to be a judgment of God on a particular nation. Chapter 2 is still continuing that thought of God's judgment, God's righteous judgment upon the earth, upon individuals, unrepentant individuals. And so really, as we begin in chapter 2, we're keeping in mind what verse 18 had said, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He's covered the Gentiles. But these, these are the Gentiles who obviously don't have the law. But what do you do with those that do have the law? Does he have something to say to them? These are the ones that would have the law of God who would look at what Paul said in chapter 1 and say, Amen, this is God's wrath. Surely, these things are wrong. These things uh, are wicked. They're evil, the behaviors. But they themselves, even though they would agree with what Paul had said in chapter 1, they themselves still are not converted to Christ. So, And what we're looking at today, the the question is, does Paul have something to say to the moralist? This is the one who behaves in a way that we would consider to be morally correct. They would stand with us against the evils of our day. They would argue that the behavior that we look at today in our society is wrong, etc., but they are unconverted. They agree with the moral tenets, perhaps, of Scripture but they have not trusted in Christ. These are those, again, that we would consider to be morally upright from our perspective. These are your good neighbors. These are the ones that would, that would march with you against abortion, for example, or uh, the ones that you would ask to watch your house, watch over your house as you're out of town. You trust them. These are those that perhaps even make claims to being a believer, but they trust in their good behavior In order to gain favor with God, does Paul have something to say to them? And the fact of the matter is, is that he does. He really sets up this argument with those specific ones. As if you've heard a number of other theologians, MacArthur has said it, Lawson has said it, that some of the most difficult people to reach are those who believe themselves to be morally upright. So in order to address these particular ones, Paul has really set up this whole argument that leads not only from indicting the Gentiles, but he's going to use these particular things that he said in chapter 1 in order to now address them. He's setting it all up. You agree with this? However, you are without excuse. And even in the first verse of chapter 2, he uses that word you Five times, not counting the others within the first five verses, but five times he's pointing to them, you, you. He spoke generally of 
of the Gentiles, beginning of verse 18 and following. They professed to know God. They, they, did, they exchanged the glory of God. They, they, they. But now he's talking to the moralist and he's talking to his, the other half of his audience. Perhaps it's in the church at Rome and now he's saying, you. He really sets up this entire argument in order to now address those who do have the law. And who, can, who, would, who would stand with him in condemning the Gentiles. They would say amen. But now he turns his attention to them. In order to expose the wickedness of their own hearts. See everything that Paul is doing. He's, he's setting up not only his Gentile audience to understand that they, are, that, that they are under the judgment of God. But he's also setting up the Jewish audience. Who are not converted to Christ. for them to understand that they are under the judgment of God. So that as he heads into chapter 3, in the latter part of chapter 3, he can then give them the great news, not only for the Gentiles, but also for the Jews. And specifically with the Jews, you cannot rely on your ethnicity. You cannot rely on, on God's covenant with the nation in order to in order to remove yourself from his wrath. Paul has much to say to that particular audience. And for those, uh, even in our own day, that want to continue to do outward things in order to gain favor with God, they want to, they, they rely on their church membership, or they rely on their baptism, they rely on, on their family, they rely on the fact of them praying a prayer at one time, and yet, what does Paul say to them? Well, what Paul says to them is exactly what he says to his audience here in chapter 2. We're looking at a number of things within these first five verses of of even seeing the hypocrisy of the moralists and God's judgment upon them, the kindness that God has extended to them in order to bring them to repentance, but the hard-heartedness of these folks. So if you would, let's stand together and give honor to God's word. And we are looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. God's Word says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Father, thank you that it exposes our hypocrisy. It exposes uh, the unrepentant heart that, we, that none of us can ever rely on ourselves. We can never rely on our good works, on our behavior. We cannot rely on our, our families. We cannot rely on our church memberships. We, we cannot rely on anything in order to avoid the righteous judgment of God. Let us all see, Father, and and take comfort and encouragement knowing that, that it's all of Christ. 
that it's only Christ himself, uh, his life, his death, his finished work. It's only him that pleases you. And we must find ourselves in him. Father, we, we pray that your word would do a mighty work within our hearts, giving us such hope in Christ, a greater reliance upon Christ, and a greater appreciation and thanks for saving us, Father, and, and granting us mercy when we didn't deserve it. Father, we thank you again for your word. And may you be glorified among your people this day. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so again, you have the Apostle Paul. He has, he has said a number of things in chapter 1, again, that the Jewish people themselves would say, Amen. And they would say that because it's consistent with the law of God. It's consistent with the word of God. Paul, you're doing a very good job at exposing these folks. Yes, they need to know that they are under the righteous judgment of our God. And then what does Paul say to them? Paul then turns his attention to them. Yes, the Gentiles are on the judgment, under, under the judgment of God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They commit the, the vile things that he, had, that he had spoken of. And then he turns his attention to them, and he says, They're without excuse, and so are you. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you passes judgment. The Jew is the one who he is, has in reference here, and we know that because not only does he identify himself with that particular audience in chapter 2, he uses the phrasing of the Jew first and also of the Greek in the latter part, or in, excuse me, in verses 9 and 10. He speaks of those, verses 12 to 16, of those who have the law, those who don't have the law. He's already addressed the ones that didn't have the law. And in verse 17, he outright identifies them of the Jews. So this is his audience now. He's spoken to the Gentiles. He's speaking to the Jews. You all have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. This is the hypocrisy of the moralist. They, can, they, they do very well at pointing out others in their sin. Yes, what they're doing is vile. What they're doing is evil. And yet they don't look back at themselves to see... Well, am I keeping the same standard that I'm putting on them? And for the moralist, they don't. They don't keep the same standard. Well, they don't look at themselves as vile as others. And that's one of the things that they do. They measure themselves by others. I'm not as bad as they are. I'm not as vile as they are. I'm not as wicked. I don't do the things that they're doing. And so they, they're able to then justify themselves and to justify their own life and think themselves to be right with God because their outward behavior is not at all like the unbelieving, outright rebellious. But the apostle really demolishes all that. And what the apostle is doing in verses 1 and following is really a diatribe. It's, very, it's a very forceful criticism. And, his, and he's really engaging 
with really an imaginary opponent because he's anticipating certain questions that they may have. He's using sarcasm as well in order to demonstrate and to, to pull down their assurance of themselves and their standing before God. And that's a, that's a heavy indictment to say to the Jews who have the law, who think themselves righteous, you're doing the same things. It's like, how, how would they be doing that? They're not committing the, the, the idolatry that was mentioned in, in chapter 1. Perhaps they're not committing the sexual immoralities that were outright mentioned in chapter 1. But what things are they doing? Well, there's a number of things that the apostle had went over, even things that we ourselves can see in our own lives that we have committed or that we battle with even now. In verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That covers a lot. We could probably see ourselves in a number of those. And this is where the apostle is then turning his attention to them. You're doing the same things. You're committing the same things. Well, how can we be doing that? That's the question, no doubt, that they would have. We're following the law. But if we take what Jesus said about the spirit of the law and the intent of the law in its beginning was to expose the heart, not to adjust outward behavior. So in the sense of murder, for example... You've committed murder in your heart when you're angry with your brother. You've committed adultery when you lust upon another. You steal something that isn't yours. You've broken the commandment. You've placed something uh, in your life that is more of a priority than God himself. You've committed idolatry. These are things that the Jewish people were doing. And you know that they were doing it because of the rejection of Christ. Now, this is something to take... Note of as well that the Gentiles who do not have the law, as Paul will say later in this chapter, they do not have the law, and yet they are a law unto themselves, demonstrating the law of God in their hearts, in the sense that all mankind has some, some form of, of morality. Anywhere you go in the world, there's always a standard of some kind of a morality, even when people have never heard of Christ. How is that? Because God has written it on their hearts. And so the things that they come to know by nature... That's how they judge those who don't have the law. Those who do have the law are then judged by what they know and understand as well. So for these that do have the law, and in one sense, there's a greater accountability for those that do have the law because they have a more specific, clear revelation of what God desires of man. And so they're more, they're more culpable they're more responsible in their rejection and in their disobedience. But they pass judgment. They say, yes, these, these are the ones. You know, and Paul uses a very similar tactic here that he does in Amos, or excuse me, that Amos does. Paul sets up the entire argument and then aims it right at those that would consider themselves to be morally upright. And when you look at Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2, Amos is, is indicting, he's indicting the surrounding nations of Israel, of Moab and of Edom, of, of Gaza. And then all of a sudden in chapter 2, 
he then turns his attention. Not only is he saying for three transgressions, if for four, the Lord is going to bring wrath upon Moab and Edom. Now he says for three transgressions, if for four, it's Judah and it's Israel. And Paul uses the very similar, similar tactic there. He says, you would agree here, but you need to look at yourself too. And not only, only that, but it just comes to the, the understanding as well that without Christ and without that, the atonement that Christ himself makes on behalf of his people, even though you could be morally upright in what we would consider to be, you are still sinful. You are still a sinner. You still violate the law of God. And yet you want to point out other people's wrongs. None, none are without sin. And so when it comes to the things that we find in chapter 1, these are things that we find within the Ten Commandments, for example, concerning idolatry, concerning murder and lust and covetousness, all of these things. And it may just be a different form, a different way that it's manifesting itself, but it does so even in the lives of unbelieving Jews. And that's Paul's point. It may not be the same, but you're still doing it. You practice the same. Because none are without sin. All are deserving of God's justice. One writer says, For the Jews to judge the conduct of the Gentiles, the judge is involved in the same conduct as the, the man he condemns. Now again, the condemnation that Paul is bringing or the indictment that Paul is bringing is not just because they're condemning the Gentiles and they're condemning the behavior of the Gentiles. Paul anticipates that they're going to agree with him and they would be right to agree with him. But they do so at their own peril because they acknowledge that the standard of God is something that they know that they're not doing. They thought that they... they were better off than the Gentiles because they had the law. But not realizing that when they're pointing out other sin, they're acknowledging the standard of God, but they're not willing to look at their own selves to see how they are not keeping up to the standard of God. And what Paul says is very much so in line with what Jesus himself had taught. In Matthew chapter 7, our Lord says in verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's very similar to what Paul is saying there. You're making judgments on them, but you're not willing to look at the log in your own eye. And that log in your own eye cannot be removed in any other way other than by Christ. So there is that great hypocrisy of the moralists who like to point out others and to hold them to a standard uh, that they themselves are not willing to keep. They know the standard of God, at least to a great extent, but... They're not willing to look at their own self. And one of the reasons why they're not is because they believe themselves to be safe from the wrath of God because they're God's covenant people. But what does Paul say to that? He says the judgment is upon you. 
He says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. You yourself are guilty of these. And so you know that God is just, that God is righteous. He always does what is right, and what is right is for God to judge sin. And so you yourselves know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And this is where Paul is saying, including you. This is what he's implying here, including you. And he's really emphasizing that. Again, in the first verse, you see, he's, he uses the word you five times. We know that the judgment of God is right. We know that the judgment of God is not unjust. And for those whom the Lord judges, he does so uh, according to his standard of justice. He renders those according to uh, their works. But here's some sarcasm by the apostle. He says, but do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you suppose this? Do you assume this? If you acknowledge that God's righteous judgment comes upon those who practice such things, how is it that you think that you're going to escape? Especially because you have a greater knowledge of God's standard than what the Gentiles do. Again, it goes back to they don't believe themselves to be under the judgment of God or under the wrath of God because of their covenant status. We're God's covenant people. And so since God has chosen us out of all the nations, we don't have to worry about that. In some of their Jewish writings, the wisdom of Solomon, for example, one particular passage says, For even if we sin, we belong to you, because we know your power. Also, when it comes to the partiality uh, that God shows Israel, he, their, their idea was that Israel is only chastened for sin, but judged with mercy, while the Gentiles receive stricter punishment. That was their view. That was their idea. As uh, Dr. Lawson had said, he said, but the thing that Paul is indicating in this passage here is that there's not going to be two separate lines at the judgment. There's not going to be a line at the judgment for, for the, the heinous and the rebellious, and then there's going to be a line over here for the moralists. You're going to be in the same line when it comes to the judgment. Just because you believe yourself to be morally good does not get you any favor with God. Dr. Lawson also says good people don't go to heaven. Hell will be filled with good people. Good moral people that we would consider to be good moral. Hell will be filled with good people. There was another writer who said Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And that's the essence of the gospel. The gospel isn't just to try to change behavior. The gospel is transformation. You're transformed. But that is the very thing that has not occurred with his audience here. They're relying on their heritage. They're relying on their ethnicity. But that is 
something that has been torn down as well. In chapter 3 of Matthew, you have John the Baptist who tells the people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were coming to him for baptism. In verse 7, rather, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourself, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Don't think that you can appeal to Abraham and avoid the wrath of God. That was John the Baptist's message. Jesus would tell the same audience, you are of your father the devil. You cannot rely on your ethnicity, is what Paul is saying. You cannot rely on the fact of you being a Jew. You cannot rely on the fact of you being uh, or having the law and thinking yourself better because you have the law. In fact, you're going to have a stricter judgment because you do have the law. It's the same, it's the same scenario when you have uh, the writer of Hebrews who talks about the law that was given through the mediation of angels and the penalty of, of rebelling against the law and how, how shall we neglect so great a salvation, he says. Because there, there's a greater and stricter judgment on those who have heard of Christ and who have outright rejected uh, the gospel itself than those that never heard. Do you suppose, oh man, when you pass judgment that you're going to escape? And of course, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is, no, you're not going to escape. You're going to fall under the righteous judgment of God yourself because you're, you're a sinner as well. You're committing the same things. And God is righteous and God will judge accordingly. You can't rely you can't rely on, on, on your family being Christians. You can't rely on being a part of a church. You can't rely on, on membership. You can't rely on a baptism. You can't rely on a mere profession of faith that you did years ago and live however you want. You can't rely on any of that in order to avoid the righteous judgment of God. That's, that's his point there. And, you know, one of the things that the apostle does here is he doesn't really address their particular sin, and then he backs off a little. Okay, now, yes, I'm addressing you, you who have the law. You're not going to avoid the judgment of God. You're committing the same things. But let, let me ease up a little and then address it again. He doesn't do that. He keeps going. You know, one of my preaching advisors at the Master's Seminary was uh, Mike Abendroth. And Mike Abendroth, uh, he had to look at one of my sermons and he had to critique it. And we had to have a Skype call uh, so that we could go over it and he could, you know, help me and, and give me some constructive criticism and all of that. And so we started out the conversation and just a little bit of small talk, you know, he's, he's a you know, very delightful guy. And he said something funny, and I began to laugh, and he said, there it is. And I said, what? And he kind of threw me off there for a second. He said, has anybody ever told you you have a really nice smile? And I'm kind of, 
you know, and, and, uh, and Amanda's over to the side. She's sitting at the bar, and she's kind of, you know, looking over. I'm like, where, where are we going? <laughs> Where's this going? And he said, I just watched 45 minutes of you like this. He said, what do you take up to the pulpit with you? And at the time, I was taking up a full manuscript. And he said, do you think it would be inappropriate throughout your manuscript, just every now and again, just to, just to put a smiley face? And he said, that way it would be a reminder to you, sometimes you have to give your people a break before you assault them again. And I thought, huh, I'll remember that. That's a good pointer. Well, Paul doesn't have any smiley faces in his letter here, and he's not backing off. He continues on not only to, to express that the judgment of God is coming upon them, but he's also demonstrating or he, he's implying to them that the kindness of God toward you that he has been showing to you should have been an indication to you or a, a way of, of promoting in you a desire to turn to him. Not to continue on dismissing his kindness because he says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You think that the kindness that God has shown to you is an indication of his favor towards you and that he is pleased with you. But instead of just outright showing wrath and outright showing judgment upon them for them to get the understanding, God is not pleased with me. Instead, God has shown kindness. God has shown kindness to them in order to lead them to repentance. We could look at this in one sense as God's common grace. God allows even the unregenerate to, to, to have a family and to, to have friends, to have good, good times, to have a career, to prosper. God has shown kindness. That is the kindness of God toward even the unregenerate. And it is to lead them to repentance, not for them to continue on thinking, well, God must be pleased with me because it seems as if he's blessing me, so I must be good. Because that was their thought. Surely God is good uh, with us and he's pleased with how we are, we are conducting ourselves because he just seems to allow good things to, to keep happening. And we can, we can, we can mistake that. Especially when we fall into sin. And we, we fall into sin and we think, okay, well nothing's happened. God hasn't chastened me yet. So you go a little further. God hasn't chastened me yet. Maybe, maybe I'm okay. Maybe, maybe God understands. He knows my struggles. He, he knows the things that are going on in my life. So maybe, maybe God is okay with how I'm doing. Or... But when we look at the Word of God, which is the standard, we realize very quickly, no, He's not. Because you're practicing the very things that He brings judgment upon others. And you think that you're going to get away from his chastening, even if you are a believer? How much more those who think themselves to be morally upright to escape the righteous judgment of God? Practicing the same things as the outright rebellious. Do you think lightly, he asks? And that's, that's meaning, you know, are you so dismissive of his kindness? That's, that's what he's getting at. Are you looking down upon it? Again, 
The Jews believed the way that they did. But when it came to the wrath of God being poured out within their lifetime, that was a very strong demonstration of God is not pleased, even with his covenant people when they are in outright rebellion. They thought lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience. But God brought swift judgment upon them, just as Jesus said they would endure. Because of their rejection of him, because of their, their murder of him, handing him over to be crucified. Filling up, uh, filling up the cup of their fathers who murdered the prophets. God was kind to them even, even in view of what would happen to the Lord Jesus and even afterwards giving them a period of time that God still showed a kindness to them and gave them opportunity in order to turn, turn back, turn to him whom they crucified and live. And they were dismissive of his kindness until he brought swift judgment. God's kindness only goes so far. It is meant to lead the unregenerate person, even the moralist, to cast their, their care upon him, to trust in him for their salvation, to believe, not to continue on. And again, even if we are believers, we have to realize that very fact that even when Paul says what a man sows, he's going to reap. He's not talking to the unbeliever. They're going to reap that stuff anyway. But who's his audience? He's talking to believers. You, unbelievers can't sow anything spiritual. They can sow to the flesh, but they can't sow to the spirit. So he's talking to believers. What you sow, you will reap. So we cannot continue on in whatever sin that we may have fallen into because we think that nothing has happened and God is, is giving us a pass or whatever. We know the standard of God ourselves, especially as children of God. For the moralist, for these unrepentant Jewish folks, what is the problem? problem is is that they have a hard heart they don't have a heart of flesh their hearts are hardened they're stubborn they're unrepentant and by continuing on in the way that they are thinking themselves to be morally upright because of their behavior and thinking that they're going to avoid the judgment of God Paul is saying you're just storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath you're just adding to your judgment. One, because you're misrepresenting the Lord and, and thinking that the Lord is going to be merciful towards you and not be just as he is in order to punish sin. So you're misrepresenting the Lord, the one you claim to know. And you have such self-righteousness about yourself that you're only storing up wrath for yourself. Because of your stubbornness, he says. This word stubbornness. The word here is um, 
sclenotes, where we get the word sclerosis. Sclerosis, the, the hardening of body tissue. This is, this is a, a word that is so appropriate here. Because he is describing the hardness of their heart toward the Lord whom they claim to know. Because of your stubbornness, because of your hard heart, and your unrepentant, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now this could mean one of two things. Either he could be referring to uh, the righteous judgment of God that did indeed come upon the nation. Or he could be absolutely in reference as well to the final judgment. You're storing up wrath for yourself for the great white throne judgment in which you will be rendered according to your deeds. Yeah, there's such a danger when it comes to being a moralist. And that's, that's a danger that we ourselves are, are easily able to fall into. Not just in our own behavior, but in how we describe things to other people. It's like our nation, for example. If we were to just ask a whole slew of believers in the nation, what is it that you want to see in the nation? Well, I want to see, I want to see abortion done away with. I want to see uh, the LGBT movement done away I want to see people you know, acting morally right and this, that, and the other. And so their, their view, especially of transforming the nation, is simply on, on a behavior scale. We want to see the nation change. We want it to go back to the way it was when we didn't have to deal with all this stuff and all this wickedness right there in front of our faces all the time. Because that's what you hear all the time. I'm tired of seeing this stuff in front of my face all the time, which we are, for sure. But what is the answer to that? The answer is, doesn't, it's not about just changing behavior. The answer is, we want to see the gospel penetrate into the nation itself, and we want to see people transformed, not just to stop doing what they're doing because we don't like it, but we want to see people come to Christ. We want to see dead people live. And so morality, when it comes to being a moralist, that's the danger, because we're only focused on behavior. We're not focused on the heart. Albert Moeller says this, the, moral, the moralist impulse in the church reduces the Bible to a code book for human behavior and substitute moral instruction for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Far too many evangelical pulpits are given over to moralistic messages rather than the preaching of the gospel. The scripture is not just a moral code book. It's not just... Here's our list of things that we want to see, things that we don't want to see within the nation, so let's do it. But that shouldn't be what we're even praying for. We want to see abortion ended, yes. We want to see, we want to see uh, all these other things that are going on. We want to see that stuff done away because it's, it's irrational. Yes. But the way to do this is not from the top down trying to just pass laws in order to get it implemented that these things can't happen in one sense. But it should be rather that the gospel would go forth and hearts would be changed. Would it be a bad thing to, out, to, to outlaw abortion? No. 
That's not a bad thing. Even right now, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we shouldn't want that or shouldn't seek after that. I've just given an example. We want to see transformation, not just behavioral changes. If they were to outlaw abortion tomorrow, that'd be great. And praise God for that. I was telling, I was telling uh, my children the other day, uh, I think it, it might have been yesterday, of, of just how amazing it was that God took this particular month in which the culture celebrates this pride and this outright rebellion against God, and it, this is the month that he decided to overturn Roe v. Wade to make it a month about life, not rebellion. God can do whatever he wants to do at any time that he wants to do it, of course. We should desire the things that are good for the nation, that are good for our neighbor, and that's one sense in which we show love to our neighbors because if we look at the word of God and we see the things that are there uh, that, were, uh, that are good laws, then, yeah, we should, we should desire that. We should want that because we know it's good, and that's part of loving, loving our neighbor as ourself. This is good for you. You may not like it, but it's going to be better. So, yeah, there is that level of things, but that, that shouldn't be the end. We should want the gospel to go forth. The gospel changes hearts. The gospel makes dead people live. That should be where our desire is. Even for those that, that are enemies of God, enemies of the church, it's not necessarily that we want them to be silent, but we should want them to come to Christ. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. You take a wicked king like Manasseh, wicked king of Judah, Manasseh, Probably, arguably, probably the most wicked king. And for him to be converted at the later part of his life? Only God can do that. And God is able to do that. And that's what we should pray for. Moralism is, is a trap in one sense. It takes the focus off the gospel, places it on behavior. Behavior doesn't gain anyone favor with God. And we see that here in this passage. Because Paul is saying, you're still under the righteous judgment of God. It doesn't matter even if you adopt the moral code of the scripture. It's like all these liberal churches out here that deny uh, the incarnation. They deny the, the triune nature of God. They deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. They are unbelievers and yet they get in their churches every week. I don't know what they do there. I don't know what they talk about. Because if they don't believe the Bible is true, I have no idea what in the world you would even talk about. Only, the only thing you could talk about is, is love. Well, we need to love and we need to love. And so you use the scripture as some kind of a, a moral code on how we need to love, even though you ignore the whole context of it. But just because you're out trying to love, and their definition of love, doesn't mean that you're in favor with God. Because you're only focused on behavior. That's it. And that's Paul's point here. Your outward behavior, your ethnicity, gets you nowhere. There is, no, there, there is no other means by which we may gain favor with God 
apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. That's, that's where he's headed. But he has to expose their own uh, hard hearts in order to then give them the good news later on in Romans. We know where he's headed, though. But as we are working our way there, that's where we, we need to be very diligent in, in how we approach the things in our nation, how we look at them, how we seek to resolve them. The main focus has to be the gospel. The gospel penetrates the heart. The gospel changes behavior by the Holy Spirit of God who takes out the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. You know, that's the promise. When you look at Ezekiel 36, the passage that we love to go to that's parallel to John 3, the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will put my spirit within you. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my statutes and so you shall observe them. It's the spirit of God changes the heart and then changes the desires to carry out the very things that God says to do. So behavior changes and it changes for real. It's a genuine change, but only because of the Holy Spirit of God in the gospel. That needs to be our focus that needs to be where we're going to as far as how we seek to resolve things in our nation. And dear brothers and sisters, we also have to be very, very careful of allowing things in our own life and thinking we're okay just because God continues to be kind to us and not chastening us for sin. You and I, we know what's right. We know what's good because we have the word of God to teach us those things. So let us not put God to the test and bring chastening upon ourselves thinking that God will understand our situation or our struggle or whatever else. God enables us to carry out the things that he commands of us by the Spirit of God whom he's granted to us. So as we, as we sin, we repent, we turn, we continue again. We have an advocate with the Father. We have the Holy Spirit of God who is our advocate who comes alongside of us enabling us to see the ways of, of escape for every temptation, to convict our hearts in order that we would turn back to Christ. So let us not put God to the test. Let us accept the kindness of God as a mercy and not put him uh, to the test to chasten us because we're taking it for granted. God is kind to his people, but for those whom he loves, he chastens. And if we want to avoid the chastening hand of God, and let us strive to do what's right. You won't do it perfectly here. You'll find yourself in sin. You'll find yourself sinning every day. But one, one day you will do it right. And that's our great hope, isn't it? One day we will be fully sanctified. No longer having to struggle with the things that we do. So we will continue on uh, in, in Paul's indictment here on next Lord's Day. If you would, let's stand together. We will pray and we will take of the Lord's Supper. Gracious God and our Father, thank you once again for your word. Thank you uh, so much uh, that you reveal to us what is good and right in your eyes and that you enable us to carry out the things that you command through the Spirit of God who has 
changed us, who has brought us to life, and who enables us to walk in paths of righteousness for your namesake. Uh, Father, thank you for his continued work in us. Um, And thank you that you are indeed a God of grace and a God of mercy. Every day we fail you. Every day we think things we shouldn't, we say things we shouldn't, we act in a way that we shouldn't. But Father, thank you that you saved us in spite of ourselves and that we're not where we used to be, that we are progressing because of your work in us. And we pray that you would continue that work, changing us daily, allowing us to suppress the sinful uh, desires and to live under the Spirit of God. Father, thank you once again for all that you are, all that you do for us. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, all of God's children said, amen.